Let's see if we can pack a few thousand years worth of history into one single episode. The Palestinian-Israeli conflict. What do we know about it? Why do we care? Where even is it? What does it mean to us in the world today? We're going to go over all these questions and try to break it down into some key facts that will hopefully be able to equip you to have a conversation with others and to learn the facts and decide for yourself on where you stand on this and why you should have a stance on this as an American citizen and if you're listening across the world as a world citizen. The world at large has a stake in this tiny sliver of land. Starting off, let me show you where it's at. Right at the epicenter of Africa, Asia, Europe, there's the Mediterranean Sea, and right up against the edge of the Mediterranean Sea is a tiny sliver of land that we refer to as Israel today. It became a nation in 1948, and we'll go over why that's contested and how that came about. This tiny sliver of land is the boardwalk, the park place of our planet, hotly contested for a variety of reasons from a diverse camp of religions and we will go over the big three religions and why that site is so sacred to them so let's start what is it let's start let's start there in that tiny sliver of land every year even today we have anywhere from a couple hundred to a couple thousand people dying in that area from violence and unrest we have reported human rights abuses from that area, military action as a constant threat from both Israel and Palestinian Arabs in the area, from different countries who have a stake in that area, and countries around the world that take stances with the Israelites or with the Palestinians, depending on where you're at and what interests there are there. So... Violence happens all the time over there. There have been two notable wars that produced the most deaths over there. One in 1948 when Israel declared its uh, stake as a nation. And one in 1967 where they took some extra occupied areas that were still occupied by Palestinian Arabs. We'll get into more details there. So why do we care? If you're an American citizen, the U.S. budget always has money directed toward this conflict. Uh, this is a bipartisan agenda. Regardless of the administration that is in, there's a huge initiative. Uh, President Trump was very pro-Israel, came up with uh, the biggest plan in quite a while that we've seen from a presidential administration on how to resolve and get peace there. It's not in effect today, but there was attention given to that. As far as the Biden administration goes, even in the 2022 fiscal year, and I'm sure the 2023 fiscal year, we've had over a billion dollars scheduled to go over there to help with Israeli defense. 
the official stance of the U.S. is that we are pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian. At the same time, we want to see those nations coexist. We want them to have equal rights and people to be able to live safely over there. The way that usually plays out as far as financial backing and boots on the ground and, you know, what our country does to make that tangible is mostly with money a lot of diplomacy but we enforce that peace and our stance there typically by financially backing Israel most of the time as as a government there are US national interests there in democracy Israel is a pro-democratic country they hold free elections there's some debate on how people feel about Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the prime minister of Israel. But overall, the U.S. national interest is in democracy, and Israel has made it clear that they are for that. The Palestinian state is more authoritarian. There's not guaranteed elections. They're sporadic, few and far between. They're not always trustworthy elections. Again, there's more reports of human rights abuses things of that nature. So that would be the national interest in it. It has bipartisan support across Republicans and Democrats. The average citizen would like to see peace in the Middle East in that particular area. The U.S. has about $50 billion in annual trade with Israel. So that's another reason to care right there. You you know, on the big picture, you think, well, what do I care if Israel's trading with that? But As far as it translates to your life, when there's supply chain issues and stuff, it's from when international relations get disrupted. Now, there's a lot of steps in between there. I'm oversimplifying it, but when we have a lot of trade with the country and then that relationship goes down the tubes, that affects you on your daily life and what products you're seeing in the grocery store, the price of specific products. Global trade is what our our whole country is based on and much of the world is based on right now so keeping that relationship upstanding and just the general human concern of the human rights abuses that we've been talking about claims on both sides americans tend to care about that we are a prosperous country and whether you think we should be the world police or not the average citizen likes to see suffering be alleviated across party lines that doesn't tend to be too political And there's a lot of death happening over there on a pretty regular basis. Not all military deaths, many civilian deaths, women and children, and very tragic stories. So overall, you should care. You should have a stance. Whatever vote you're casting, look into your candidates. What are they standing for? What are they about? Where do they stand on this particular issue? And most candidates will have a pretty forward position on this, depending on the year when people care more or less. We'll see, but, you know, find out where they're at and how you want to cast your vote there and how that matters to you. So, Jerusalem. I figured this would be a good next topic to get into after we cover why do we care? Why do they care? Jerusalem is why they care. Let's start with Judaism. The Temple of the Mount in the city of Jerusalem. This is the hotly contested area across all fronts. There's 
a tiny sliver of land called Israel, including Gaza and the West Bank, and we'll get into what those are. And then in that tiny sliver of land, there's a smaller sliver of land called the Temple of the Mount. In the in the Jewish religion, they consider this Temple of the Mount their number one holiest site. This is where the original Jewish temple stood. If you refer to biblical history, that's probably the most comprehensive and historically accurate record we have of Judaism and human history and how that site became holy, how Israel as a nation rose and those Jewish temples took place. So in the Jewish religion, they pray facing Jerusalem at the end of, what is it, the... um, at the end of their Jewish festivals, I think I, I think the Passover Seder, they, they say until next time in Jerusalem or something to that effect, looking forward to a day when they're in what they would consider their homeland. There is the Western Wall that many Jews travel to, a very famous place that they travel to to pray. This obviously is a very important site in their religion and one that they would like to keep. Now let's get into the Muslim perspective. This exact same spot of land called the Temple of the Mount is also important in the Muslim religion. Very different reasons. This particular area in the in the Islamic faith, there is the Prophet Muhammad. And the Prophet Muhammad traveled from Mecca, different area, on a winged horse with the angel Gabriel to the Temple of the Mount, prayed with some other prophets there, and ascended into heaven. So obviously this makes it a very holy site in the Muslim faith as well. Many Muslims take a trip to get there, take a trip to get there at some point in their life. They consider it a very holy site. Historically, they've prayed facing Jerusalem and the Temple of the Mount. Since in recent history, they've changed to where they pray facing Mecca. And so the Temple of the Mount is considered, from what I can find, the third holiest site in the Islamic religion. So both of those religions have a stake, not just in Israel and Jerusalem overall, but in the Temple of the Mount specifically. All right, the Christian faith. Israel and Jerusalem is an important site in the Christian faith. I would not say that it is on the, as, at the same caliber as the Islamic religion and the Jewish religion. For Christianity, Jerusalem is important to us as to to Christians because it was important to Jesus Christ. The Garden of Gethsemane was thought to be in Jerusalem where, where Jesus prayed and spent the night before his crucifixion. The resurrection is believed to have happened at the Church of the Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And the resurrection thought to have happened in there um, in, in Jerusalem as well. So Three major world religions all having a stake in this one area. Usually the conflict does not involve Christians so much as it does the Islamic faith and the Jewish faith, Israelis and Palestinian Arabs. Now let's get into the meat of this. This is why it's important. This is why you should care. And now we're going to get into the history of how we ended up where we are today. 
So as we referred to before, the biblical history of Judaism and how the temples came to be at the Temple of the Mount, the rise and fall of those specific structures of Israel as a nation, all of that is obviously way more than we can get into right now, but very interesting. If you want to dive deeper, I would recommend the Bible is a great place to start. In about the 1500s, the Ottoman Empire controlled that area of the planet. And the that particular area of the planet was occupied by Arabs and the Islamic faith. People that adhered to the Islamic faith in that area until about the mid-1800s. So that's been the bulk of recent human history is that that area has been occupied by Palestinian Arabs in the Muslim tradition. World War II comes around and after World War II, the British have controlled that area and are famously dividing up the world and trying to figure out what are we going to do with this area post-World War II. They decide that the Holocaust is over. The Surviving Jews need a place to call home. Obviously, in the Jewish faith, Jerusalem would be a great place for that. The British decide we're going to give this spot of land to the Jews post-World War II as a place for them to go to after the Holocaust and everything that's happened there. Now, the story of that whole process, uh, in our book recommendations at the end, I'm going to give you a, a really fascinating, great read on how that happened and what the British's role in that looked like and how they got there. And certainly was not pretty and not as simple as we're making it here, but to get a working knowledge of the subject, we're going to leave it at that. They said this is for the Jews now. So the Jews start to make their way over there, but obviously the area is occupied by Muslims and Arab people. Jewish people are trying to move in. They don't get along. There's cultural, religious tension. It results in violence. Until eventually in 1948, the British more or less take a hands-off approach and say, we've given this area to the Jews, but it's up to the Jews to make it their own and defend it. The British step out. They declare themselves in the nation of Israel in 1948. War ensues through a variety of countries in that area. If we look in here, I believe Egypt gets involved in that war. Jordan gets involved in that war. And all the Arabs that are already in that land get involved in that war. The war wraps up roughly a year, two years later. And Israel controls most of the territory and has defended their lands that they've claimed. But there's still a lot of Palestinian Arabs in the area, still living there, which is how we've ended up in the complicated situation that we are today. Ironically, if you look in the biblical history of how Israel originally became a nation and you know, not to get too deep into the religious side of it here, the faith driven side of it here, but how God and the promised land and the creation of the nation of Israel and promising in this area and then they go in to conquer but then they don't actually conquer all of the people that are in that area they don't actually fully eradicate the presence of that area and it leads to a lot of issues further down the road in biblical history 
kind of the same thing happened on a much shorter term scale here where Israel declares their right as a nation. They declare war, but by the end of it, they control the bulk of Israel, but there's still kind of the Palestinian Arab West Bank, Palestinian Arab Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem was mostly Palestinian Arab control. And this is how it went for about the next 20, 30 years, somewhere in there. And I'm, I'm messing up these timelines a little bit. But in 1967 was the next major conflict where Israel then started up again, took the West Bank, took Gaza Strip, and took East Jerusalem. Now, when I say took, I mean they occupied these areas and there was war and a lot of violence and death getting there, but again, still the Palestinian Arabs remain in that area under Israeli occupation. Which mostly gets us up to where we're at today and why there's continuing violence and why there is conflicting stories on both sides about how is humanity being respected in these areas and what does life look like. A lot of claims on the Palestinian side of them being targeted and abused by the Israeli government who occupies the area. The Palestinian Arabs obviously want their own autonomy as a state. They want their rights to Jerusalem as well and their holy sites. They want to be able to live. So that's the bulk of the history of it. What does it look like today? In politics, we have, there's a lot of legislation, a lot of funding that goes into this particular area that is too much detail to go over today. I did want to go over probably at least one big development that I feel is good to, to gain a working knowledge of the subject called the Abraham Accords. You may have heard this on the news. You may have heard the term thrown around a lot. It ends like with most things political, it can get pretty complicated, but more or less the Abraham Accords are a series of treaties that happened facilitated by the United States attempting to create peace in this area between Israel and the surrounding countries. There's a series of treaties involving four countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco. The through this series of treaties they joined Egypt and Jordan in creating peace with Israel, working toward cooperation on different issues and historically they have you know since the Abraham Accords they have been able to cooperate on some level in a variety of different ways. It's not perfect, but it's something and it's more progress than we've seen in that area in quite a long time. There was a proposed plan by the Trump administration that divided areas relatively equally, trying to stay as objective as possible. You may have different thoughts and opinions on that if you want to look into it. It's very easy to find on Google and you can kind of look into the details of that. But the Palestinian state felt it was one-sided that America really only took into account Israel as a consideration and there wasn't enough compromise for them, so they rejected the plan. So that's kind of dead in the water. And where the Biden administration stands today, as we discussed earlier, we send a lot of funding toward Israeli defense systems to 
to help ensure peace in that area, but also try to send funding, again, bipartisan through whatever administration is in there. We usually try to send funding to the Palestinian side as well to set up a government, to encourage democracy. And unfortunately, what we've seen so far in recent history is that the Palestinian state continues to lean toward more of an authoritarian state, less free leadership, doesn't have a lot of accountability, elections aren't very stable or consistent, human rights abuses, things of that nature. So most of the U.S. national interest lies with democracy and pushing that agenda. Uh, but we would like as a country to see peace between both sides. So, I think I'm going to end this one with a couple book recommendations. How do you get more into a subject that's so vast and so complicated? And it's easy to think, especially with the age of information that we're in today, that why should I care about something happening on the other side of the planet? I've got enough problems in my own life here. I've got enough problems in our country. Why do I care what's happening on the other side of the world? I feel like we covered a lot of those reasons that you should have a good interest anyway. But if you are more interested and you want to get more informed on the subject and be able to discuss it and get a better, a better big picture view, I have a couple book recommendations for you. One, when I'm looking for book recommendations in this area, I'm going to be looking for both sides like I do in, in all of our episodes. This being the two sides between what is a Palestinian Arab perce perception, perspective, and what is the Israeli Jewish perspective. And I think I found two books that really are great reads and exemplify that well. I've only read one of them, so but I've read a lot of reviews on the other, and it's something that I'd be interested in reading, so I'm going to recommend it also. So I'll start with the Palestinian perspective. It's called In Search of Fatima, a Palestinian story by Gada Carmine. It's a memoir of someone growing up in the area on the Palestinian side, what life looks like there. Looks great. It's got good reviews. And I think it'll really help us get that emotional attachment to the issue and, you know, what it would be like to have your identity in limbo. And both of those groups at, at different points in history have suffered with that identity crisis diaspora and the refugee crisis and things like that, which is another reason we should care. You know, as long as this conflict is going on, there's going to be refugees. Right now, most of those refugees are Palestinian Arabs that other countries in the area now have to figure out how are we going to help these people that are being pushed out of the land that they've been in and they can't get along with this other group. So, you know, that puts a strain on the world at large. The other perspective the book Exodus, a novel of Israel by Leon Uris. This was a very popular book, I believe in the 70s or 80s. I don't know the exact timeline on that. I have read Exodus. It is fantastic. A real page turner. You can't put it down. I mean, even if I'm, I don't typically go for war books, I don't relax with violence or anything like that. But this one, it's, it's hard to put down. And... It wraps you up in the story from the Israeli perspective of, of where they came from. It really starts post-World War II and, you know, how the average person thinks that 
they were liberated in World War II, the Holocaust is over, the Jews are free and saved. And then we kind of stop thinking about it there. And this book really dives into what did life look like after that? That was really just the beginning of a new age. I mean, the Jewish, the Jews as a people have been around for a very long time, but it was the beginning of a new age. And what the British's role was in that, what the world, how the world viewed Jews as a people at that time, even post-Holocaust and how they got there and what life looked like as they moved into that strip of land, which was not good farmland, already occupied with people of different culture and different religion that they don't get along with and trying to make a life for themselves and trying to get along and, and, and what that looks like. So I'd recommend checking out both of those. I still personally need to check out the Palestinian perspective and do my due diligence there. So overall, again, I want to reinforce honor is not the exclusive property of any political party. That's Herbert Hoover. This podcast is about getting together, learning the facts, getting working knowledge of whatever issue we're discussing for the day so that we can hold intelligible conversations with others. In the age of information, I think it is vitally important that we are all speaking our truth. And we can't speak our truth if we don't know what the truth is. When we are hooked up by the mouth with a fire hose of information all day, every day, with the ultimate accessibility, we don't want to reduce and degrade ourselves to just being clones and just regurgitating the opinions of, of others and waiting until someone tells me how to think before, because I can't form an opinion on my own because I don't do the legwork. We have more opportunity in humanity as a species now than any other age in human history. I think it's our responsibility and would be to our advantage to take advantage of that. Don't let information overload just hose you down into, until you don't become a person. You just become a clone of whatever everyone else is telling you to think. Learn the facts. You don't have to be an expert in everything, but figure out the basics and take responsibility. Where do I stand on this? How can I have a conversation about it? Because ultimately, that's what's going to create that middle ground. Not that your views have to be middle ground necessarily, but it'll bring everybody, the more facts that the general population can make themselves aware of, the more informed the average citizen can be, the larger the chance of compromise and that middle ground being formed where we can come together and understand I can still hold my truth and I can still be morally sound and comfortable with where I'm at and understand that this is a free world and that we have to cohabitate and that not everybody's going to agree with me. So how can we talk about it and still respect and love and bridge that divide and get along? Because when you look at areas like this in the world, let alone visit them for yourselves or go to African countries where there's just, you know, there's some countries in the world that are just in constant civil war, some countries in the world where slavery still exists, all of these things, you shouldn't go there or read about that, expose yourself to it and understand it is a miracle that that is not life on the whole planet all day, every day, because that is what we are all capable of. What we are experiencing now is rare and it's precious. 
it's our responsibility to keep it up and keep it going. And that starts with knowing the truth, getting grounded in the facts, being informed. I'm out. Hello, I am here to talk about the Israeli-Patalinesian conflict. As you know, I am the daughter of Jacob McDonald, and I talk about the most boring things on earth. We are... Burst!